Genesis 49. We'll read the first 28 verses. Hear the voice of God from Genesis 29. It says, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi, your brothers, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah. You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in white and his clothes in the, bro- in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun, you shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good. And that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich. And he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength. And the arms of his hand were made strong or nimble by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessing of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. These, or all these, are the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. This is the inspired and the inerrant word of God. May he bless its eternal truth to our souls. You may be seated. The children are dismissed to their classes. As Pastor Matt said, two more sermons here in Genesis. So next week is the last week. So this is, uh, since I'll be gone next week up in Randolph, this is my last week in Genesis. And what a journey it has been. As we know, the structure of Genesis has surrounded the Toledotes, which was the history of what became of particular individuals, or at the beginning, what became of the heaven and earth. So unsurprisingly, we're concluding the final Toledot, right? What was it that happened to Jacob? What became of him? What happened with all of these sons? And chapter 49 is sort of the exclamation point. It takes us to the end of the story of Jacob. And it lets us know exactly what became of him, what happened after him. And uh, he expanded, didn't he? He expanded from a family or from a son into a nation. We saw that last week as this tribe of 70 plus arrives in Egypt. Two weeks ago, I suppose. Uh, this tree of Israel has now branched out from one leader to 12. Instead of a singular patriarch, we're now to a dozen tribal chieftains. For the previous three generations, the covenant blessing has been passed from father to singular son. We had Abraham to Isaac, and then Isaac to Jacob. And now we have Jacob blessing 12 of his sons. So, so you can see very clearly this massive expansion. And each time the blessing has been reiterated by the patriarch or by God to his son, then what happens in the narrative is that hope extends. Like, okay, we're good for another generation. The next son, the next patriarch has received the promise of God. And so here it's just this explosion of hope as we end the book of Genesis because 12 of the boys have received the blessing of their father. And Judah and Joseph, particularly as we'll see today, uh, have received this uh, special portion from their dad and the covenant promises are continuing. That helps us end book one and even take a break from the Pentateuch because we're going to go and explore some other places in Scripture, moving to Ephesians, moving to Proverbs, and we'll be back. We'll be back in the Pentateuch and we'll pick up in Exodus and we'll pick up on a note of hope because of these promises. So it's a comforting conclusion here to, Joseph, or to Jacob's life and a fitting end to Moses' book one. Verses one and two of our text this morning set the stage for us. Joseph, uh, I'm going to do this a lot. There's so many names. I apologize in advance. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, Jacob, he calls his sons around his deathbed, and he uses this solemn occasion in order to both evaluate and bless his sons. You can see a lot of their activities that show up, uh, things that they've done in the past, as well as where he sort of uh, accelerates them or places them in the future. And uh, so even 
the virtues and vices of these boys' descendants were in some way fashioned in this text. We see the course set for each of these tribes as they go throughout redemptive history. Jacob says, let me tell you what will befall you in the future. Let me tell you what will happen next. So dad's not only blessing, but he's prophesying. He's telling the future. Certainly Jacob's words are, as we see, they're based in his discernment, the discernment of his son's actions and their character. But we'll also see shortly that some of Israel's words were far past his own observation. They're beyond things that he could see, and they're more like a prophetic oracle. So one of the unique features in the text is the plain contrast and the blessings between sort of the short ones and the long ones, the short quips where it's like, yep, next, 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 and they're just pretty uh, brief. And then there's some that are very elaborate and, and lengthy, and they do have differing um, values. I suppose not the boys are more valuable than another as individuals, but their roles and their responsibilities in the nation of Israel that was to come, that was being established, were vastly different. And some of them, the longer ones, arise above the others. And so it's a little bit difficult uh, to preach, especially the shorter seven. Um, there's some of the things that are very clear in the text and in the history that ensues where you can say, oh yeah, I see how that was applied. I see where that showed up and others of them that are quite enigmatic and difficult. So the point of this narrative as we go forward this morning is not to know everything that happens to all 12 sons and their tribes, but to catch, especially on the lengthy bits, what the important pieces are. So we're going to focus our time a lot like Jacob focused his time We'll, we'll run through the shorter seven, but it's pretty brief, and we're not even, not even always going to make comments about how we see this because we don't always have clarity of all the details as the history uh, ensued of, of what the, how these things took place, I suppose. Uh, but then five of them are quite significant. So the way that it goes is it goes in order of the birth moms, basically, but all at once. So all of Leah's children are first. And then Bilhah and Zilpah's are arranged a little bit like uh, a chiasm, like one and then the other two and then the last one. Uh, and then Rachel is last, so Joseph and Benjamin are at the end. So that's how it's laid out. It's not in birth order exactly, but in mother order. It's kind of how it goes. And unsurprisingly, the significant ones are, so the five here, are these five, the first five of Leah, and this isn't connected. So the first five of Leah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, those ones are significant. Hmm. Probably because this is his first wife, and these are, he's basically going to establish where the birthright goes, where the blessing of, of reigning goes. And then the last one, also unsurprisingly that's significant, is Joseph, his favorite, uh, the one from his firstborn from Rachel. So those are the significant ones. Um, there's also, this is all poetry. This is, it's prophetic poetry. And what we'll see, if we were to go through the details of this, like this could be a several series lecture just walking through all the poetry and the details and some of the textual variants. And, and then based on the different uh, texts, some of the interpretive differences that come up. And we don't have time, particularly in the seven, to walk through many of those, if any of them. So if you're reading, as I'm reading, uh, and you see something that's like, oh, that looks like a, a very different concept. 
I'm just going to go ahead and say or read the one that, I'm, I, that I lean towards. And if you have questions afterwards, feel free to interact. But we don't have time to walk through all the details of these seven. So, in order through the text, also in order of significance. We're going to jump in to the short ones first, run through those seven. So, we're going to start with Zebulun. That's verse 13. So, we're skipping the first four of Leah, and we're going to jump in 12. Zebulun, he dwells by the haven of the sea, becomes a haven for ships, and his border adjoins Sidon. So, there's a poetic triplet here, and the point is that Zebulun has an industrious relationship with significant cities on the commercial shoreline of the Mediterranean. That's his blessing. His western border, Zebulun's western border, the land he's allotted is about 15 miles from the Mediterranean, so certainly a travelable distance. He's not right on the shore, uh, but he has interactions with the city uh, the cities that are on the coast of the Mediterranean. Next up, Issachar, 14 and 15. There's a couplet at the beginning that describes him as a strong donkey. You'll notice a lot of animal metaphors throughout. Many of the boys are compared to an animal. He's a strong donkey, and he likes to rest. He lies down between these two burdens. You might have sheep folds. Either idea is communicating that the donkey is resting very peacefully from his work. And then the quatrain, or the set of four lines after that, is an explanation of how much he likes to rest and how he's actually willing to trade his strength, his work, for the benefits of abundance. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant, and so he trades servitude for uh, basically access to that land. He bows his shoulder to bear burden and became a band of slaves. So Jacob predicts that Issachar would be willing to trade some freedom for the material blessings of life. You'll notice as we go through this that several of Israel's oracles blend blessing with tragedy or like a high point and a low point. And uh, one of the ways that we see the low points established historically after this is in the conquest of Canaan when Israel ceased to completely obey God. They partially obeyed him in driving out the people from the land. So at the end of the conquest, there's still a lot of uh, interliving with the people from Canaan. And that produced many years of war, many years of some like uh, vassal relationships to other nations or other groups. Uh, certainly intermarriage, idolatry, a lot of problems were produced by their lack of complete obedience. And some of these things take place in that setting. Uh, then we have Dan, verse 16. Sort of a, it begins and ends with this high hope, and it's an inclusio of vindication. It's a play on his name. Dan means uh, that God has vindicated me, if you remember back from the, when the children were born. Um, and so he starts, Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And then it ends, that God is actually going to vindicate him. I've waited for your salvation, O Lord. Uh, so though the tribe of Dan is small in number, it's going to be used as a great instrument against strong enemies. What does that look like? Or what's a good illustration here? Here's another animal metaphor for us. That's verse 17. Well, Dan's like a snake. He's like a serpent that's just in the path. And what could a serpent in the path do? He could actually take down a rider and his horse. Right, something that's far greater than him, far mightier, more numerous, you might say. But if the snake bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backwards, then 
the weak have confounded the wise, then that which did not have much strength has overthrown something with great strength. So there's an illustration of Dan um, being small in number, but mighty in impact as a judge of his people. And then ultimately in verse 18, Jacob points out that it's God that ultimately brings salvation. We see this all throughout Israel's history that God enjoys to use the smaller in number in order to accomplish something mighty so that everyone would say our salvation has come from God. So that's Dan. Then we move to Gad. Uh, well, kind of a weird one for us in English. is a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph. This is all a play on his name. Uh, Gad means um, a tribe. It could also mean fortune, but this one certainly leads toward the tribe or the group imagery, perhaps even a group of raiders. So this, this son named Raider, you know, he uh, interacts a lot with foreign people, and they're constantly, they're, there's sort of constant interaction with them, negatively speaking. Um, so he's one of the tribes that's east of the Jordan River, because he's east of the Jordan, then a lot of his borders are exposed. And so he has to the south of him, you have Moab and Edom. And then to the north of him, uh, you have the Arameans. And to the east, you have Ammon. And there's constant sort of interaction with these other tribes and nations. So he's getting raided by raiders, but he will have the last raid. So it's a play on his name three times in a row. Uh, he gets basically the last word. Then... We have Asher, short and sweet, literally. He experiences favor and prosperity. He's known for his food. He's known for food that's fit for royalty. He can prepare very fine dishes, and he delivers the goods to the court, right? It's, it's uh, fit for a king. And that could be positive or negative. It's a little bit difficult to tell. It could either be that they have a, you know, a place in the royal court further south, that they bring uh, wonderful goods down to Jerusalem, or it could also mean, and probably more likely, it's a negative thing, that like this is the northernmost tribe, they're on the Mediterranean coast, and they interact quite a bit and have interference with the Phoenicians later on, and uh, so it probably is more of a tribute sort of situation, that they have to bring their best goods, which they're wonderful at, into the court of the king. Naphtali, verse 21, he's a deer let loose. It emphasizes uh, his freedom and perhaps fertility. This would be another place um, that you'll see a difference in line two. We have he uses beautiful words, but you may also see that uh, he bears beautiful children. Uh, this deer was known for having many little fawns and known for freedom. And so he's perhaps able to maybe be a a country boy, like to explore unhindered, to have his freedom a little bit away from the group. He's the north uh, easternmost tribe. Um, so something to that effect for Naphtali in verse 21. Then let's skip Joseph, go to Benjamin, last of the seven. Uh, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. That's a bit surprising, but there's his animal. Is He's a wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey, and at night, he shall divide the spoil. So a little bit of an unusual one for Benjamin, because to this point in the narrative, it seems like Benjamin's significance has been rising, particularly in the eyes of Joseph. Right? He says, where's your youngest brother? You know, and he wants to bring him, and he's, he's very sort of focused on, on Benjamin, and he gives him better gifts and more favor. And then here at the very end of Jacob's blessings, Benjamin takes sort of a minimal role 
and he, he's, it sounds like he's quite, he's quite a violent individual, uh, so his significance quiets down. He's going to experience this sort of vicious success through continuous fighting day and night. He will feast and conquest and divide spoils. So those are the seven. Uh, if you have questions, feel free to jot them down. We can talk a little bit more about them afterwards or another time. Uh, let's shift our attention to uh, the first five, the first four, and then Joseph, the significant ones. As far as, so begin maybe thinking application now. The first three are probably stronger in the moral category, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Then Judah is going to be very strong in the Christological category. Joseph's probably strongest in the theological category. So those are, as, as the rubric through Genesis has been, we're looking for moral, theological, and Christological application. Those, sort of look to those tribes for those categories. So uh, first, Reuben. Or more like Reuben, you know, like this glorious firstborn. The one, like you were the first from the womb and you're my might and the beginning of my strength. You know, my son, my boy, the one who just carries this very much of a warrior sort of a picture. And it starts so strong. There's these two sets of three and verse three is the first of those. There's two triads and the first is just glorious. And he, he talks about the excellency or the preeminence of his dignity and the preeminence of his power. He has all the rights and all of the glories and it's just strong start. And, and Reuben's probably sitting there just waiting for the mantle to descend and for him to get the birthright because that's what's supposed to happen. And he says, and you lose it all. You don't get any of it. This sort of very strong response. He says, you are unstable as water. You shall not excel. So what he's just done in the last line of the first triad and the first line of the second, that idea of excellency or you may see preeminence, it's all the same word. Three times he uses it. Glorious in dignity. Glorious in power. You will not be glorious. Should have, would have, could have, didn't. Why not? And he points to his turbulent recklessness. He points to his moral failure. He points to another passage in Genesis, Genesis 35, that describes when Judah, says, and it happened, when, or when Reuben, when Israel dwelt in the land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard. So he's been immoral. And because he's been immoral, he loses the right of firstborn. And so you could, I mean, he's probably low, quite dejected. But he says, because of your turbulent recklessness and your immorality that you've offended me, and you've even perhaps sought to steal your birthright early, might be what was happening in the situation, um, you won't get it. Dejection, low. Well, maybe Simeon and Levi shocked. They're like, oh, that's not good. Or is that good? <laughs> you know, like we're next. I'm next, Simeon and Levi. And so he turns to them, and you might expect that they're instated as the inheritors of the birthright. But he says, Simeon and Levi, you get, you get a blessing together, the only two. You're a pair. You have instruments of cruelty in your dwelling places. You love your swords, you love your might. 
You love violence. And he disassociates himself from them. He says, let not my soul enter your council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. Well, I guess it's not us. <laughs> Next type of an idea. And he zeroes in here on their anger and their violence. Utilizing, he utilizes what's called a merism, which is a pair of two words that indicates totality. So like a night and day that we saw in Benjamin, that means all the day. Uh, near and far, that means everywhere in between. And so here he says, in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. That they're just violent. It's just who they are. It's in their character to do this. And we know one of the, I mean, the premier illustration that we would look back to is uh, Genesis 34, which was the Dinah incident, where they judged righteously. They had the correct assignment of righteousness to go and to judge these people who had defiled their sister. But their manner, the way in which they did it, they were hungry for bloodshed. And so he says it quite a few different ways in the end of verse 6 and into verse 7. Um, in their anger, they slew a man. Their self will they hamstrung knocks. And, he's, and he curses their anger. He doesn't curse them, but he curses their activity. He says, cursed be your anger. It's fierce. Cursed be your wrath. It is cruel. And so he doesn't give, these, these are all the blessings. It's not as though he's cursing his sons, but this is a difficult blessing. He says, I'm going to divide you in Jacob and scatter you all throughout Israel. And we do see that very clearly. So the first is Simeon. And Simeon was given a piece of land that was basically enveloped by Judah. So Judah was all around it. And Simeon sat in the middle of it. And eventually it was just considered Judah. It was absorbed by Judah um, in Joshua and in Judges. And so he sort of, he, his land is less significant. He's scattered in Judah. And then Levi, we know he didn't receive any land because he is the priestly tribe. Instead, he receives 48 cities that are scattered all throughout. So we, we can see a pretty clear uh, way in which this was fulfilled even historically, that he does scatter both of these boys uh, throughout the land. So certainly a little more reflection here that there are consequences to sin that particularly in leadership roles or as they go to be these tribal leaders, as they go to inherit a blessing, as they go to inherit something magnificent, that magnificent thing is taken because they are unfit. They're disqualified. Now, what's interesting is that we could probably run through all 12 of the boys and they're all disqualified, right? Sin disqualifies us. And so not only do we have the theme of the sobriety of sin and the seriousness with which we should take it, but you also have a theme of mercy. Like that does turn when you look at Judah because Judah didn't deserve it either. We've seen him sort of escalate in prominence. The, the volume of Judah has been going up throughout the text. And the last thing we saw was magnificent where he substituted himself for his brother and he was willing to go and be uh, you know, alone and with Joseph and who he didn't know was Joseph at the time, but, but he's willing to substitute himself. So we've seen perhaps Judah grow or mature, move into someone you might look at as an inheritor, the firstborn, but he's disqualified too historically. You know, so we see both seriousness of sin and mercy. 
And as people who have received the gospel, don't we understand that idea? Like we don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve God's favor. We don't deserve to be co-inheritors with Christ. And yet we, we glory, as Judah probably did in this moment, we glory in the mercy of God and his willingness to take out his wrath on Jesus rather than us. So here he turns his attention to Judah. Oh, and this is, this is beautiful, brothers and sisters. This is, uh, this is beyond Jacob. This is, more, this is one of these uh, prophecies that was, he, he was saying even more than he knew he was saying. So he begins with this superiority. He lifts Judah from fourth-born to Leah to firstborn. And he places him up here, and he says, you are the one that your brothers will praise. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? You're the one that your brothers will praise. Your hand, your foot, maybe depending on your translation, is going to be on the neck of your enemies. So you have this supreme victory. Everywhere you go, it's going to work well for you. You're going to trample your enemies and your brothers are going to look up to you. Your father's children will bow down before you. So we have this revisitation to Joseph's dreams. This has happened to Joseph. He was elevated and all of his brothers fell down to him. But now we have the elevation of Judah to a similar status where everyone is going to look up to Judah. Now, why would he have this superiority? Let's give a, the, the animal metaphor for Judah and then he moves to this prophecy. So the animal metaphor is that of a lion. And this has carried uh, all across many different cultures and times. We get this image, right? For this son to be the lion, it does raise him to preeminence. It does, oh, it's like, oh, he's first place. Um, and so he starts out, and there's this maybe progression from him as, as a cub to this pride male. Um, as he says, you, you were a lion's whelp, Judah's a lion's whelp, this youth, vigor, aggression, a young cub. And from the prey, my son, you've gone up. So he brings the prey into the cave, and there he rests and he lies down because he's been successful in the hunt. Now, he's not trying to make an exact like comparison to the kingdom, the animal kingdom exactly. Uh, so the female lions are sort of ruling the, ruling the pride there. Uh, but this picture, right, where he... He has strength. People look up to him. He roars and people tremble. He can freeze his enemies. And he, like he says, who can, who can make him get up from enjoying the fruits of his, his spoils? Like no one can. No one can rouse him. So he has this, uh, what's even become to us a very common image of a king. He, he begins, give it, he gives him that metaphor. Okay, so then he actually explicitly says in verse 10 that he will rule all of his other brothers. And so there he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Verse 10 is if we can place significance on verses, is the most significant verse in this entire text. This verse anticipates kingship in the tribe of Judah. And it doesn't only anticipate that Judah will be king, but that his tribe will be king. 
that his descendants will be king. The scepter, this rulership, will never leave Judah. And the, the lawgiver or this ruler's staff, this commander's mace, something like this, maybe two images of his, of his authority, it will not depart from his feet, from between his feet. And so he will forever have kingly authority. And he says, until something takes place, until Shiloh comes, that, unfortunately, is one of, it's the most difficult word in the whole text. Nestled here right in the middle of the most important verse of the text is probably the most, until what? You know, you're like, if you're receiving this message and you're like, you're going to be the best in the world until, okay? And you're like, we want, what? you know, we now, years, years and years later, this is difficult. Shiloh is just a transliteration of the Hebrew characters. It's a Hebrew word. Until Shiloh comes. There's a place named Shiloh, a city named Shiloh. So obviously this is a thing or a person, place, or thing. It's a noun until this noun arrives. But places don't arrive, really. I mean, New Jerusalem, it moves. But like normally cities don't move, right? So it's probably not the city. And then we're just in a literary, like we're in literary chaos here. <laughs> like some of, the, some of the different options. I think the two most likely ones are either that the word is broken down to mean, it's, it's actually two words, that there is tribute brought to him. Now that would be a thing, right? A thing being brought to Judah until tribute's brought to him. And, and that, that's sort of consistent with the picture in the next line that all of the world is going to come and worship. So until tribute's brought to Judah from the world, the difficulty with the interpretation tribute is that the next line also seems to associate personhood with Shiloh. And he says, until Shiloh comes and to him, who's him? Well, it's either Shiloh or Judah. But it sounds like Judah's been ruling until Shiloh arrives and then something different takes place. So it's also possible and right grammatically to break Shiloh up into a few words that means the one to whom authority belongs. And I think that's right. That Judah, so read it that way, that Judah has the scepter in his right hand and this law staff in his left. And until the one to whom authority belongs arrives, he rules. And when the one to whom authority belongs arrives, then the authority goes to him, and the result is that all of the people, the world, bows to him. Hello. <laughs> what a text. What a prophecy. That's what he's saying. So this is the first messianic prophecy associated with Judah. Um, and so we have a specification of which of the 12 the, mess the messianic line will come through. Probably one of the most understated prophecies in the Old Testament. Normally we emphasize, because it's not covenantal, like it's, it's J uh, Jacob that's speaking it. Uh, and so we might emphasize, you know, the Abrahamic covenant and then skip to the Davidic covenant, which are important and probably more supreme because God's coming to give those statements. Uh, but here, nestled between the two, we have a specification of which of the sons the Messiah is going to come through. And what's the result? 11 and 12 is awesome. 
he says, and he will bind his donkey to the vine. I think Shiloh, the one to whom authority is due. He binds his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. What? Why? What's the point of that? Well, if you're a harvester, if you're in the vineyard and you're, you know, getting your wine and you go and you go ahead and attach your horses or your donkeys to the vine, what are they going to do? They're going to get busy. <laughs> They're going to start eating. <laughs> it's it's notorious diff- notoriously difficult when you're riding or anything to stop your horse from eating. That's all they want to do all the time. So if you go and you're like, you know what? It's fine. I'll just ride in, jump off. They can go eat whatever they want. What does that say? It says, I have so much stuff I don't know what to do with it. This is the best harvest that's ever been harvested. So he has so much on the vine that the animals can go and eat freely from the vines. So he binds his donkey to it, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Wow, even now, before the text in Micah, which associates Jesus when he arrives in Matthew with this donkey and the donkey's colt, we have an allusion here, all the way back in Jacob's words to Judah, that the king possesses a donkey and a donkey's colt. And so here he is, he attaches it to the vine, lets it eat freely. And what does he do? Hey, can somebody wash my clothes in wine? Like what, it's so abundant that he, can, he just scrubs the dishes with the finest wine. He can do anything with it. It's pouring out so freely. He says, I'll wash my clothes in the blood of grapes and the finest wine that there is. Use that. It's fine. We have plenty. Just this lavish abundance. That's what it looks like when the one who deserves authority steps into the throne of Judah. And then he says his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth wider than milk. There's a few different ways you could take this. Uh, I think he's simply saying his eyes are red with wine and his teeth are white with milk, meaning there's an abundance of all of it. He's, he's continuing the imagery um, so that everyone's full, everyone's fat. There's no, there's no need for no need for anything. So it's shalom is what it is. It's peace. There's no more war. There's no more looking around your shoulder. Animals can eat all the best stuff, wash our clothes in the best stuff. So it's just this beautiful image. That is a prophecy about the reign of King Jesus. That's what that is. And he says it here to Judah because Judah is Jesus' grandfather. That's why he says it here. So we'll return back to this at the end. Um, Gather a little bit more application. Let's switch over to Joseph. Glean a few things here. Switch your mind from Christological to theological. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. That's the first triad, and it speaks to his prosperity. So a similar idea to Judah at the end of the blessing to Judah. He begins his blessing to Joseph, and it's this idea that he even uh, so a wall is something generally that you don't run over with, like that, that uh, stops things from growing. But he says Joseph's so abundant that he just runs over the walls. There's no containing his blessing is the idea. So his prosperity is not within boundaries. One of the ways that this took place is that he's given a double blessing, right? Both Ephraim and Manasseh are blessed. Uh, so he's a fruitful bow by a well. Then we have a bit of a history. Let's, I think let's remember 
what happened to Joseph. Let's recall the narrative. I believe this is an allusion back to his brothers. His brothers are the archers. So there's a, there's a war image here. The archers have bitterly grieved him. He's been shot at a lot in his life. They shot at him and they hated him. But was Joseph brought down? Regardless of how many hits he took, regardless of how many years he spent in prison, regardless of how many lies and accusations were spoken against him, how much betrayal and hatred was spewed his way, he was not brought down. In fact, it says that he remained strong. Not just that he was whittled down to nothingness, but he survived. No, he was strong. Has sort of his, his left hand remaining in strength, probably holding the bow. And then the arms of his hands were made strong. You may have agile. I think that's a better translation. So probably that he continued shooting his own bow, right? He had a strong left arm and then an agile right arm. It's kind of this idea. Why? What enabled Joseph, as we remember, what enabled him to weather all of these storms of life, the betrayal of brothers, the lies that were, that were leveled against him, and the years of time that he suffered unjustly? His arms and his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. That's why. That's why Joseph remained strong. And we saw that in the narrative, didn't we? Because God was with him. God was with him, but God went with him. And that's the story, folks. Like, that's how it works. That if God goes with us, nothing can stand against us. And so he attributes Joseph's security and his stability to the mighty God of Jacob. And what that does is it opens this fountain of theology. Really, it's like a names of God fest here in the middle of Joseph's blessing. He just goes on. He says, by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, speaking of his power. And then he says, from there is the shepherd. And so he speaks of this imagery of, of God's relationship to Joseph, like that of a shepherd, that of him leading providing, guarding the, the still waters and the fertile grass. Like he takes him there consistently. He guards his soul. Psalm 23 imagery. God was Joseph's shepherd. And then he says, and he was the stone of Israel. The stone of Israel meaning protection and strength and security. And he moves on, and in, in the first two lines of 25, it's a couplet, he gives us, he reiterates the name El Shaddai. So in line one, he says, El, by the God of your Father who helps, and by the Almighty Shaddai, he blesses. And he just says, this is who God is, that he is your aid, he is your assistance, he's the one who delivers you. Like he said back with Dan, I've waited for the salvation of the Lord. Like he says to Joseph, you remain strong, why? Because of the mighty hand of Jacob. So just in synonym after synonym, he just says, and he provided for you, and he protected for you, and, and he is your power. And he just says, he's the reason you are who you are. And 25 just just bleeds in blessings six times. He says, by the Almighty who will bless you, there he begins. And then here's another merism with the blessings of heaven above and the blessings of the deep that lie beneath. So in the blessings of all of creation, his providing for him materially, 
is providing rain for him and water and guarding his crops and providing food. He says he's blessed you with all of creation, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. So this birth and nurture, he's given him children. He says that even my own blessings, the blessings of your father, Jacob, he says, you've excelled all of these. You have the greatest of all blessings, he says, up to the bound of the everlasting hills, like to the heights of the greatest mountains we've seen, so your blessings will flow. And we've certainly seen throughout the whole of Genesis that this idea of the blessing and the presence of God, that means everything. If he has blessed us, like he's promised us, and, he's, and he swears that he's with us, we're full. We have more than everything we can need. As the psalmist says later, the, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And so he goes on this sort of like a theology proper, like all of these names of God, and then what God does just in raining blessings upon blessings to Joseph. They'll be on his head. They'll be on the crown of his head of him who is separate from his brothers. So two brothers rise above the rest. Joseph, because he's the favored son of Rachel, and because we saw uh, God's mercy in making him one of his own, and we see, we've seen Joseph's stalwart character, his morality. Uh, God had been changing Joseph and, and strengthening Joseph. And so he receives blessing. And then Judah, as the fourth from Leah, the one who received mercy, despite being a sinner, the one who received mercy and has the messianic promise. So as we reflect on all 12 of these, I know it's a, it's a lot of information, but perhaps, I, I suppose perhaps the five, let's just review these, that the first three, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, reflect on the reality that sin has consequences Reflect on the reality that we must be sober and serious about morality, about sin, as those who now in time have been considered sons of Israel because of the true seed, Jesus, who was born and we've been found in him. Consider the importance of living consistently with the covenant God of Israel loving what he loves and hating what he hates. This is a part of the sanctification process, is adopting the mind of God. We saw that in Colossians, certainly. Have this mind of Christ in us. And so we, we ought to live out the moral majesties of God. Uh, this is his intention for us and his work in us that he's promised to complete. So we should take sin seriously. There are dangerous consequences, particularly in this text, to sexual ex excess and to violence. It costs Reuben, Simeon, and Levi the crown, and aside from Levi, uh, certainly a measure of leadership. On the theological standpoint, so back to Joseph, uh, this prophecies have been given by God in order to sustain his people through difficult times, through difficult hours. Um, Israel as a whole was sustained by the blessing and the promise of God throughout years and years of conquest, of their own failure, 
They hoped in the promise. They hoped that God would keep his word and that he would bring them to a land. And so here, we have this idea that because God was with him, because God had promised him, then he was successful. God as his might, God as his shepherding provider, God as his protective stone, the El God of his father, the the one who helps, the Shaddai, the almighty, the eternal one who knows no bounds. He is the one that showers blessing. And so, There's no battlefield, right? The archers, there's no battlefield so dangerous that the mighty God cannot deliver us from it. There is no drought so severe that the good shepherd couldn't sustain us through it. There is no storm so fierce that the stone of Israel cannot ensure our safety in it. He is the God of our help. He is the almighty blesser, the everlasting promise keeper, and we must throw ourselves wholly onto him if we have any hope of of security through this barrage of arrows. So there's theology, a rich um, idea of who God is, something that could inform our adoration. And then finally, it is the Christological picture of the Lion of Judah. So Judah's the lion, And because of who he is and who his children are, because the scepter has been promised to never depart from his line until the one who deserves authority arrives. We have this promise of the Messiah. Davidic kingship, which we see very clearly laid out in 2 Samuel 7. So David is of the line of Judah. And here he specifies that it's even through David's line that that the Almighty is going to be. He says in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 12, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And he goes on, but he says, in your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This is our hope. That the kingdom of Jesus, the messianic son of David, will be an eternal kingdom. If that's not true, then we don't have a king and we don't have a place we're going. But because it is, then we have our hope informed. David's greater son, the seed of Abraham, the the royal line from the tribe of Judah. This hope is most clearly presented in Revelation 5. It's fascinating to me that all throughout, so all throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament prophets, uh, and then occasionally in the New Testament as well, Jesus is described as a lion, the Messiah is described as a lion, but the only place, and I don't believe I'm misspeaking here, the only place that lion and Judah are connected, that the lion of Judah is spoken about, is in Revelation chapter 5. And that was our call to worship this morning, at least from this chapter, and I'd like to read Revelation 5 for you, because we have the throne of God visible and displayed, and John's seen that. He saw the throne, but in the right hand of the one who has, who is sitting on the throne, there's a scroll. There's writing on the inside and on the back, and the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And he saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, an important question, who can open the scroll? Who's worthy to open the scroll and to loose these seals. 
Who can take us into the eschatology? Who can take us to the end? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders, he said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And so I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though he had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came, and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they all fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the poor living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever. Forever.